It says something very different. Because after banishing his first wife from the palace forever, that's the story of Esther chapter 1, King Ahasuerus banishes his wife. She displeased him. He was in a drunken rage. It's a very interesting story. But what happened is after waking up the next morning, King Ahasuerus, realizing what he'd done, realizing he banished the queen, queen forever, he woke up in chapter 2 to find that he needed a new queen, or at least he wanted a new queen. And since his advisors knew that King Ahasuerus, and if you read through the story, you see this again and again, recognized that that their king was a, was a, a go-big or go-home kind of guy. I want you to listen again to what they proposed. We read it once, but look at it again, starting in verse 2. The king's attendants who served him said, Let beautiful young virgins be brought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all his provinces. Now what you need to know is King Ahasuerus ruled 127 provinces of the world at that time. In present day terms, his kingdom extended from India in one direction, all across North Africa in, other, in the other. He was the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that particular point in time, about 500, about the year 500 B.C. And, and again, it says, in all of his provinces that they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, and to the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let the young lady who pleases the, the king be queen in place of Vashti now. Do not be fooled into thinking or assuming that this, what's, what's being written up here, what's being proposed here, was some sort of harmless Miss Persian beauty pageant. That all the ladies are come in and have a conversation with the king, and whoever he sort of finds the most appealing becomes queen in Vashti's place. Also, I would say to you, and this is important, especially when we read the Bible in the Old Testament and the narratives, that, that not everything the Bible reports, it actually endorses. Because given that this roundup of women, and that's really what it was, spanned 127 provinces of the known world, what's happening here would have swept up hundreds, if not thousands, of beautiful young girls, taking them from their homes, taking them from their families, and they had no choice in the matter. The man in authority thought she was pretty. If a man in authority found her appealing, she was chosen and sent off to the citadel into the king's harem, where she would then spend the next 12 months being prepared, going through this purification process, at the end of which she got one night alone to charm the king. Then, after that night was over, she was then shuttled from the first harem of the virgins to the second harem called the concubines, where she would spend the rest of her life. And, and unless she was the one chosen out of all the hundreds, if not thousands of women, to be the new queen, she would probably never marry, never return home again, see her family, or go back to the life that she knew. And it was into the center of this sordid reality show, that's really kind of what it was here, that, that two otherwise ordinary, or say ordinary, very ordinary people were swept. You've got Mordecai, he's a mid-level Persian government official of Jewish ancestry, and you've got his younger cousin turned adopted daughter, Esther. And while both of them, if you know the story of Esther, if you've read the book of Esther, as time goes by, were destined to become world changers in their own right. They were destined to do great and amazing things for God. What I want to show you here in our introduction to them in Esther chapter 2 is that this story, chapter 2, unravels two great myths about usefulness to God. Again, that's what we're talking about this morning. What does it take to be useful to God? We've got our ideas, we've got our notions. 
but this story unravels two myths that I think many of us, whether we realize it or not, have bought into. And myth number one is this. The first myth that this story unravels about usefulness to God in the real world is, in fact, that worldly resources are an advantage. The first myth that this story unravels about usefulness in the kingdom of God is that worldly resources are an advantage. Because that's exactly what we think, isn't it? If only I had, if only I could, if only I knew, if only I was, if only this, that, 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 fill in the blank, whatever it is, if only I could say, do, think, know, perform this thing, we tell ourselves, then I do great things for Jesus. But I can't. So I don't. Because I'm ordinary. Because I'm a great deal. I don't stand out in a crowd. And again, yes, by the end of this chapter, Esther is a queen. And by the end of the book, Mordecai was, was to become one of King Ahasuerus' top advisors. But prior to all of that, I just want to do this very quickly. I want you to review with me everything up until that point that Esther and Mordecai had absolutely no control over. So look again, right at the beginning of chapter 2, starting in verse 1, the first thing they had no control over was that the king needed a new queen, and that the king wanted a new queen. The second thing they had no control over in verses 2, 3, and 4 is this crazy plan his advisors came up with, this racy plan that they came up with to find a new queen. They had no choice in the matter, it's just what had been decided. Verse 5, they have no control over their own Racial identity as a minority. They were Jewish people in a Gentile land with Mordecai and Esther. Verse 6, they had no control over their social status as, as the son and daughter of exiles. They're a racial minority. They are, they are national exiles. Verse 7, they had no control over the fact that when Esther was a baby, she lost both of her parents. And, and she had no control over the fact that she was then adopted by Mordecai. I suggest to you that it's even significant that she had no control over her great beauty. Now that's one of the if-onlys, right? If only I was attractive or handsome or beautiful. Not in this case. Because what did being beautiful make her? It made her a target. It put her sort of in the crosshairs of not being able to control her life. Verses 89. They had no control over the fact that Esther was transferred into the custody of this advised her name, hey God, she had no control over the fact that somehow she immediately found favor in his sight. Verse 12, she had no control over the fact that she was to spend the next year in this harem, being treated a certain way. There may have been things she enjoyed, but there, there was nothing that she had control over. Verse 14, she had no control over how the king would conduct himself toward her during that night. She had no control over the fact that when that night was over, she'd be placed in this second harem. Again, probably to spend the rest of her life. Verses 16 and 17, she had no choice, no control over the fact that in the end, she was the one chosen to be the new queen. Maybe that excited her, maybe it terrified her. In other words, as, as one author puts it, quote, when Esther was chosen, listen to these words, when Esther was chosen for the king's harem, she had no assurance of the future, no premonition of her forthcoming role or risks. 
She was taken regardless of her opinions, emotions, fears, or desires. There was no prophet to assure her. There was no voice to inspire her. She couldn't look heavenward and, and discern a, a design or peer into the distance and watch the cumulative effects of her circumstances. In other words, here's the point I'm trying to make. She, Esther, she had to do life in the real world, in real time, with real challenges, just like who? Real life, real world, real time, real person. We know, if we read the end of the story, sometimes we forget Esther didn't know where it was going. Mordecai didn't know where it was going. And I believe that recognizing that fact begins to unravel this Christian myth that worldly resources are an advantage, that if we want to make a difference, we need, but we need that something. And this story tells us that that's just not true. So myth number one that this story unravels is, is that worldly resources are an advantage in serving the Lord. The second myth is this. Myth number two that this story unravels about usefulness in the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ is that ordinary moments don't really matter. That life's ordinary moments don't really matter. You know, at the end of my sophomore year in Bible College. I attended Emmaus Bible College in Dubuque. Graduated from there a long, long time ago. But at the end of my, my second year of Bible College, I was deeply conflicted, as only a college sophomore could be, about what to do with my summer. Uh, just overwhelmed with so, I mean, I, sort of an angst of like, what am I going to do with my summer? Because I had two options in front of me of how to spend my summer, and I just couldn't figure out which was the right one. Option number one was to go back to an old job I'd been doing for years. I did it through high school, I'd done it through college to that point, but I was home, I was coaching gymnastics. I, I was pretty good at the job, I made a lot of money at the job, and of course I knew that if I wanted to go back to college in the fall, I gotta have money in order to do that. So, so option number one, go back to what I know. Go back to the sure thing. But option number two was, to take a youth ministry internship, working under the direction of a youth pastor at, at a church in the Oklahoma Panhandle, a town I'd never been to, a church I'd never seen, a man working, working for a man I never knew, except that Beth, who, I don't know if we were dating at the time, I don't think we were dating at the time, we had been dating for a while, it was her brother, and, and there was an opportunity to go work for him in this far off place where, after taxes on a weekly basis, I was going to make it this, $68 a week. And I'm going back to college. And so I'm conflicted, right? I'm torn up about it. When I shared that dilemma with an older, wiser brother in the Lord, his counsel was this. And not, not, what did I want him to do? I, I want to do what you would want him to do. Tell me what's the right thing, right? You make the decision, and then I don't have to own it. I just have to do it. I said, well, John told me, but that's not what he did. My friend John's answer to me was this. He said, Aaron, do whichever takes more faith. Do the thing that takes more faith. And along retrospect, that was a very ordinary conversation. It was two guys sitting on a bench by a lake in Wisconsin having a conversation. That sentence, in a very real way, changed the direction of my life. Because it... It compelled me, and I knew the answer as soon as he, he said that. I knew what I was supposed to do was to take that internship. And 
And the reason it proved to be a major turning point in my life is, as I said, it was a youth ministry internship because the first thing I learned that summer is I am not youth ministry material. I was horrible at the job. So bad that I gave it another run the next summer and another church. I found out I'm even worse at the job. I am never, ever the guy you want to call to work with youth ministry. I always make a mess of everything. And if I hadn't learned that lesson, I probably would have tried to become a youth pastor and destroyed some poor church's youth group forever. So I <laughs> It was an important lesson. Sometimes the lessons in life are what we're not supposed to do, right? And, and then the other thing it did... And this was a little bit more gradual, but it was over the course of that summer. You know, I was working for my wife, now my wife, Beth's brother. So she was there for that summer, too, in this far-off place. It was new to both of us. We were away from all our friends and all our distractions and all the things that we knew. That's the summer where, where we began to sort it out because we've been dating two years and broken up three times. Um, not the greatest dating pattern ever, but it was a good one for us because over the course of that summer that we were able to get away, spend time with the Lord, and realize, you know, God has called us to spend the rest of our lives together. I still remember the walk that we took where we figured that out and said, you know what, it's been hard, but, but God's up to something here. In other words, that was an occasion in my life where I learned this, as another wise friend more recently told me, it's your moments that make a life. <coughs> Ordinary moments make a life. We're always looking for the big thing. Guess what? God's always working this place. God is in the details. And, and here too, Mordecai and Esther show us the way they show us the same thing. Because once again, I'm just going to survey the story really, really quickly. I want you to see with me all the ordinary moments that added up to something extraordinary, something of world-changing significance. These are ordinary things. Sometimes it was just Mordecai and Esther doing what had to be done. For instance, Mordecai's adoption of Esther. He didn't have to do that. But he did it. He he took her in, he made a, a choice to take her into his home and raise her as his own daughter. Verse 10, he, he counseled Esther as she went into the harem to keep her Jewish identity a secret. Verse 11, it was, it was on an ordinary basis. He would just go every day uh, to the palace, to the citadel, to check on Esther's welfare. Verse 15, Esther made a choice. It says before she went into the kingdom to, to heed Haggai's advice. She might have thought she knew better, but, but she just went to that that unit, that leader, and, and did as he instructed. Verse 20 is her just ongoing attention to Mordecai's counsel as she tries to figure out what's happening to her. Verse 22 is, is an ordinary moment. Mordecai's just going about his business at the end of this chapter when he overhears a plot to, to assassinate the king. He wasn't looking for that. He wasn't investigating, but he heard it, and so he reports it. And then Esther, in turn, reports it to the king himself. Ordinary moments. Building one upon another is God's Something bigger than either of them could see or imagine. Arch, Archbishop of, of Canterbury, former Archbishop of Canterbury, William, William Temple once said, I love this quote. He said, when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. When I pray, he's a tongue-in-cheek, right? But when I pray, coincidences happen. When I pray, stuff happens. Things start to fall into place. Things start to make sense. When I don't pray, they don't happen. And, and what happened in, in Esther chapter 2 is the same basic thing. Again, through successive moments of ordinary, obedient 
living, guess what? Mordecai and Esther, they find themselves in just the right place, at just the right time, with just the right resources and opportunities to fulfill God's purposes in world-changing ways. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in the extraordinary. God made them heroes of the faith through the ordinary, through the everyday, through in many respects, having a total lack of control over almost everything that's happened in their lives. <coughs> if we want to follow their lead, if we want to make a difference for Christ, let's make a difference for Jesus Christ. Who is a believer who wants to live for Jesus? We all want to make a difference. If you're a believer, you want to make a difference. If we want to follow their lead, if we want to learn from them, I think there are some essential truths to absorb from this story. I've got four of them. It sounds like a lot, but I'm going to move fast, okay? I think there's four things we can take from this story if you want to live an impactful life. Number one is this. It's on the screen behind me. Foundational, fundamental, the most important thing, Jesus must be your Savior. You want to make a difference in this world? Even non-believers want to make a difference in this world. But if you actually want to make a difference for Christ, if you want to make a difference of eternal significance, first and foremost, you have to know Jesus. And the reason I mention that is because, again, if you trace first Mordecai's conduct through this chapter, something that becomes evident and sort of sit and soak in it is that all of these decisions that he made, the choices and the things that he did and the way he lived his life and the way he responded to circumstances, almost all of his actions, it seems at least clear to me, were dictated by the fact that he was a Jew. By his identity as one of God's chosen people. Now, he wasn't living in Israel. He wasn't able to worship in the temple. But he knew who he was in relationship to God. And it was his relationship with God that informed the choices that he made. And later on, if you read the rest of the story of Esther, you see the same thing. That when she comes to the biggest moment of crisis, the biggest turning point in her life and in her reign as queen of the Persian Empire, the choice she makes is dictated by her identity in the world. As a follower of God. And, and today it's the same. A, a life of lasting significance flows only from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Most of us know, probably have heard Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you can save through faith, right? The, the gospel in a nutshell, but, but it was a long time. I, I'd known Jesus a long time before I'd ever really, I knew Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but I'd never paid attention to verse 10. Verse 10 says this. It says, so we are his workmanship. Did you know that? God's workmanship. Don't sell it short. You are who you are by God's design. Strengths and weaknesses. The things you'd rather change about yourself, God. That was his decision. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in himself. Not only did God make you exactly the way he wanted you to be, he has mapped out the path that he wants you to take. Isn't God great? Isn't he good? He cares about you. You. you don't have to say it out loud, but you might want to write it down so God cares about it. He cares about everything. About who I am and in my life. Let me ask you something. Have you trusted Jesus as Savior? I don't mean you come to church. Coming to church is good. Coming to church is wonderful. But coming to church is not the same as knowing Jesus. He didn't know it. And he trusted him. That is where 
Jesus needs to be your Savior. Number two, and, and, and maybe this is really the, the biggest lesson out of the, of the four. Others might stand out to you, but I think perhaps the biggest lesson to me that I need to remember, I've had to remember a lot lately, is this, that God's invisibility is not a sign of inactivity. God's invisibility is not a sign of inactivity. You know, the most, one of the most, perhaps the most unique thing about the book of Esther, maybe some of you know this, but others of you don't, it's worth remembering even if you've heard it before. The book of Esther is unique in the Bible in that it is the only book in the Bible where the name of God is never mentioned. God's never mentioned, the Lord's never mentioned. He's never been referred to sort of offhandedly or in an indirect kind of way. It, in a sense, you could say that the book of Esther, God's invisible entirely. But, based on even just what we've seen so far, can you honestly look at this story and say God's not, not involved? God's not at work. God's not doing some stuff. He's invisible, but he is far from inactive. And, and that's what I said God is always working. God is always moving. God is always up to something. But he is under no obligation to show us his hand. He's under no obligation to sort of show us his cards. He will eventually. Things begin to become clear. But in the moment... He is under no obligation to tell me what he's doing, why he's doing it, why is it so hard, why is it so confusing, why? Because without faith, it's what? It's impossible to please God. The one who comes to God must believe in who he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. It's going to walk by faith. Because it's in faith that I learn to trust him more, I learn how much he loves me. You want to live an impactful life. Jesus, number one, needs to be your savior. Number two, understand God's invisibility is not a sign of inactivity. Number three, we should recognize that your limitations are not necessarily liabilities. Limitations are not necessarily liabilities. But if you go through the Bible just systematically and very intentionally you need to realize that the list of heroes, people we would consider heroes of the faith, Old and New Testament, the list of, of Bible heroes with, 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 with weaknesses, with, with shortcomings, and specifically whose weaknesses and shortcomings, well, were where God most vividly worked. That's a long list. The list of Bible characters where God worked in and through people's weaknesses, that's a long list. Moses stuttered. Joseph was a slave. David was the youngest son of an ordinary shepherd, shepherd whose, whose dad, I, I think, loved him, but thought so little of him that when Samuel came looking for him, he didn't bother bring him in. Even his own dad didn't necessarily all that see in David what God saw in him. Peter had a fiery temper. And on the list goes. And it isn't it true as you read through the Bible that it was in each of those it was in each of those shortcomings we call liabilities that God did some of his best work. So let me ask you a question. What are the disadvantages? What are the limitations in your life? What are the obstacles staring at you right now that may be the very place where God wants to do his greatest work? It may be that he's put that thing in there. 
It may be that he set that thing in front of you. Not to make your life hard and miserable, not because he doesn't love you, but because he loves you so much that he wants to teach you something from that. That just might be a world-changing significance. What disadvantages may be the place that God actually most wants to work for his glory? And then fourth and final, I'm going to finish with this. Do you want to make a difference for Jesus? Do you want to make an impactful life? Start with obedience to the ordinary. Start with obedience to God in the ordinary. After all, that's what I learned this a while back. It's a proven fact. You can't serve God where you're not. You can only serve Him where you are. You can only serve Him where you are. That's where we get to the, if only I was, if only I could, if only...
of whose lives your word says they were written for our instruction so that we might know what to do now. Father, the, the lesson, the, the chief lesson for us this morning in the story of Esther is just to trust you and obey you. Father, sometimes the thing that is easiest and simplest, I know in my life I make so very hard. Father, would you forgive us for, for all the what ifs, for the dreaming and the wishing, the hoping that things were different, and not that they shouldn't be, Father. Help us to be present. Or what I think our, our church, this church, this community, our world needs, our believers who are attentive in the moment. Father, the people right in front of us, the broken hearts and lives all around us. Father, we look forward to someday, we look forward to that day when we're with you face to face and all this stuff is in memory. Because you haven't come yet, that means there's work for us to do. Help us to once again just to re-embrace your call gladly, willingly, joyfully, even in the ordinary. Father, take the things of truth that we've examined here this morning and seal them to our hearts and move your hands and feet. And Lord, let everything else just slip away and be forgotten. So we really will go home looking to Jesus alone. Stand your breath.